0: principle of the enemy is similar to the principle of the, to the spirit in the sense that there is only one enemy of the church and he hates unity in the body of Christ. He hates unity in the body of Christ. And the, the passage, go ahead and go one more, the passage that I start with here is from Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 is uh, Paul's metaphor that he uses of, of, of uh, spiritual warfare, kind of a military metaphor. This always works well in San Antonio, Texas. So, um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Underline that in your mind. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What in the world does that mean? It's an interesting phrase that Paul uses, spiritual forces of evil in, in, in the heavenly realms or the heavenly places, Um In your version of Scripture, the word heavenly should not be capitalized because it's not a reference to what we think of as heaven. When Paul talks about the heavenly realms or the heavenly places, and there are only three places that I'm aware of in Scripture where he uses that particular phrase, what he's talking about is the spiritual world, unseen spiritual world around us what is unseen but is here. And, uh, and he references that to say the church's true enemy is in that realm, not in the physical world. And so, whereas government may feel like an enemy to the church, or those people, or those people may feel like an enemy to the church, what Paul is saying here is they're not the enemy. The enemy is in this unseen spiritual world around us. It, it, that's who our enemy is. And, and that, that's where Paul comes from. When he talks about. Uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. By the way. I, I, If you. You can't really. Be a student of the Bible. And say you believe the Bible. And at the same time say you do not believe in the occult. Because. The occult, this unseen spiritual world, it's all over the pages of this book. Everything from the Witch of Endo in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, lots and lots of references to this unseen spiritual world. And so it's, it exists, and in some, in some regards, in, in some ways of thinking about it, I think the Apostle Paul would say it this way. I think he would say that in some ways... That world is more real than the physical world. See, the scripture talks about the physical world as like dew on the grass. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. in, the, in, the, in from the perspective of, of a God who exists across all of time, exists across millions of years, this physical world that you and I live in and our mortgage and our job, and our car that won't run, won't start in the morning, and it frustrates me. And and our our children who are breaking our hearts over the choices they're making, and our uh, all, the physical world that we live in is here today and gone tomorrow. It's like dew on the grass. But that spiritual world that is all around us, Paul would say, that's reality. It's eternity. It's, a very, it's, it's more real in that sense than the seat you're sitting in right now. And, and so this concept of the enemy is recognizing that the enemy of the church is that real and is that scary and is that permanent in so many ways. So what, is, what does Scripture teach us about this enemy? Let's just get into some of those just real quickly. Uh, we'll talk about this. Uh, John chapter 8 uh, is, a, is a great uh, place to look uh, in Jesus' in, in one of his conflicts with the Pharisees. In fact, this is maybe the one that I, I happen to believe that this is the particular conflict where some among the Pharisees decided, we've got to kill this guy. I think this is when that decision was made because what, what Jesus says to them in John chapter 8 Um, when they get to talking about Abraham, right, and being a child of Abraham and what that means. And Jesus says, you're talking about being a child of Abraham. I'm telling you, before Abraham even existed, I am. That's the way Jesus would say it. He invoked the, the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh, and he applied it to himself. And I mean, the Pharisees just lost it at that point. This guy just called himself God, and they just lost it, and they got very, very angry, and this is where Jesus says this to them. This is in John chapter 8, uh, starting with verse 42. Listen to these words. I mean, this is really hard stuff. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In the NIV version it says, when he lies, he speaks his native language. What we learn about the enemy is this. This is Christ is the personification of truth. So the enemy... Is the very embodiment of deception. Even, when, even if it's not in his interest to lie, he lies because it's the only, he is a compulsive liar. It is the only thing he can do. Everything that comes out is deception. Now, that's an important thing to understand about our enemy because it has a lot to do with how he does the things he does, how he does what he does. There's another great passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, First uh, Peter chapter five verse eight. It says, "Behold, your enemy is like a lion on the prowl, seeking whom he will devour." And the reason I I think this is such an important concept, and I've actually I, I, our ministry does a lot of work in South Africa, and so I've I've been on safari in South Africa, not to kill things, but to see things, um, and. Uh, some of my Christian brothers in South Africa are the ones who actually helped me understand this, this concept of a lion on the prowl seeking whom he will devour. Here's, here's the concept. First of all, what, what we didn't pick up from watching Mutual, Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom, I thought Marlon Perkins knew everything there is to know about this stuff and, and he taught me and that's how I know this stuff. But we, you wouldn't have necessarily picked this part up. Uh, first of all, Um, it's the lioness who is on the prowl, not the male lion. Male lions are at home with a remote control in their hands watching TV. It's the female lions that do the hunting for the most part. And the other thing I learned about female lions being on the prowl is a lioness can follow a herd of animals for weeks without eating. But what she's doing is she's staying completely out of sight and she's watching and she's learning. And she's studying the herd's patterns. And she's particularly paying close attention to and identifying those members of the herd that are most likely to find themselves separated from the herd. Maybe they're ill, maybe they're lame, maybe they're young, or maybe they're just stupid but she's paying close attention to those members of the herd that she knows are tending to make decisions that separate them from the herd, that cause them to lag behind. And what she's slowly doing over time is she's repositioning herself very slowly so that she can position herself in between that one member of the herd and the rest of the herd. And what What we see on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom is what happens next. Because according to my friends who know this stuff in South Africa, once that has happened, once she has positioned herself between that one member and the rest of the herd, for all practical purposes, the hunt is already over. It's done. And that's when Mutual of Omaha swings in and films it for us to watch on TV. And so this begins to make so much more sense to me then because this this principle of the enemy helps me understand that my protection from the enemy is not when I'm out here all by myself, even with God's word in my hand and Jesus in my heart. My protection from the enemy is when I'm with the herd. And what the enemy is working on is splintering us off and dividing us. And causing us to ask hard questions that we don't think our church can answer. And causing us to make decisions that we don't think our church will understand. In order to separate us from the protection of the enemy. I think that's just a really important aspect. Um, The enemy's strategy has never changed. It is to divide God's people. It is to divide God's people. Lastly, the enemy uses the log in my eye to blind me to the truth about four things in other words and this this is a, a, a concept you're familiar with from Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says, why are you so worried about the speck in your brother's eye there is a log in your eye first remove the log from your eye so that you can see clearly to help the brother with the speck in his eye the point here is there are things that cause us to not see the truth and it, we, we call that the enemy. The enemy uses that log in my eye. That painful circumstance, the enemy uses it to blind me to the truth about four things. And here they are. Number one, he blinds me to the truth about God. He blinds me, number two, to the truth about myself. In some cases, he blinds me to the truth about my brother. And in some cases, he blinds me to the truth about my circumstances. But the enemy is really, really good at what he does. And, and uh, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think, where Paul talks about, I am worried about your minds that they may be led astray by the work of the enemy in your life. It begins with the intellectual process. The work of the enemy. It doesn't begin. It may feel like it begins with the emotional process. It doesn't. It begins with the intellectual process. It begins with this process of you asking questions that you don't have answers to. And that's where the enemy moves in and begins to blind you to the truth. And it can be about any of these areas. Think about blinding the truth about God. That's what he did with Eve. He blinded Eve to the truth about God. He He actually got Eve to believe that God had lied to her. Eat this fruit. She says, no, God says, we'll die. Surely that's not right. Surely you will not die. He actually convinced Eve that God was wrong. He blinded her to the truth. He blinds us to the truth about myself. This was King David in his sin with Bathsheba. He couldn't see himself. It took this very creative confrontation from Nathan to help David see David the way God saw David. He blinds us to the truth. We can't even see the sin in our own lives sometimes. He's that good. He blinds me to the truth about my brother. And for unity purposes, this one is central. He can actually cause me to believe things. He can cause you to believe things about the person you're sitting next to right now that today you'll tell me you will never believe. Tomorrow you will believe them. That's how good he is at what he does. And and I I don't want us to ever talk about the enemy, and I don't want us to ever teach about the enemy as if it's some kind of a childish figure with a pointy tail, and he's red, and he carries a pitchfork. It is so much more dangerous and insidious than that picture. And if that's the way we're talking about the devil, then we are doing our kids a disfavor. It is very dangerous stuff and he's very good at what he does. He's been doing it for thousands of years, getting you to believe things about the person you're sitting next to right now is candy from a baby for him. He's really good at what he does. And so we shouldn't talk about him or think about him as if he's not. In fact, in fact, sometimes I convince myself that I'm so spiritual and so filled with the Spirit of God that I can't be deceived by the enemy on this subject. No, no, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm, I cannot be deceived. And that is exactly what the enemy wants me to believe. When I go over, go over to the continent of Africa, they have face-to-face encounters with demonic things over there that, that would shudder, make you shudder. We don't have that over here so much. But it's so commonplace over there. It's so commonplace over there. But I have a theory about that. Why is that not as common over here? And I know there are probably some places where it is more common. But why is the enemy so much more invisible over here than he is over there? And I believe that the strategy over here in our culture is the enemy genuinely wants us to raise up a culture who thinks it's silly to believe in the enemy. Now, over there on that continent, that's a hopeless strategy for him because the people over there have been coming face-to-face with demonic things for thousands of years. They know he's real. And so that strategy won't work over there, And so he just shows up over there. But over here, we are living in a culture that thinks we are foolish for believing the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Why would the enemy show his face when we live among a people who don't believe anything about him? Why would he show his face? Rather, what he's going to do is he's going to operate in our intellectual processes and cause us to believe things about one another that simply are not true. And he's so good, so good at that. And then lastly, he blinds me to the truth about my circumstances. What we see in the story of Job, we see him trying to do, trying to convince Job, trying to blind Job to the truth about his circumstances. It didn't work. Job wouldn't be blinded, his friends were blinded. Boy, he had horrible friends, Job did. His friends were horrible, but he would not be blinded. It didn't work. So blinding us to the truth about things is what the enemy does best. And that's his strategy. It's how he divides us. It's how he splinters us off. All right, did I, get, did I hit all the blanks?